podcast listeners. I am Brian Dillman, and this is the Rational Face Podcast, the best podcast on the blabbernacle. This week, I am by myself, riding Lone Ranger. Brian Kissel's out, going on vacation or something like that. What we have today is another episode of the Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist question and answer session with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. There are two questions that Dr. Fife addresses today. One deals with parenting advice on how parents can talk to their children about sexual self-exploration or masturbation. And the second question has to do with how one can feel sexy or perhaps how one can reframe what sexy means to them. Um, as, As we all age, our bodies tend to not look as wonderful as they once did. And so uh, Dr. Fife will address both of those in our episode of Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist with myself and Laurel participating in the conversation. So let's quit listening to me and let's jump right to it. another Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist chat session with uh, myself, Brian Dillman, and Laurel Armstrong. Please hey. say hello. Hello. And we have, as always, Dr. Jennifer Mason fife Hi. Uh, we have two questions that we'll be discussing today. And in addition to that, um, Jennifer has some workshops coming up. Or Are they online courses? Well, both. I'm, I'm going to be in the Bay Area in April doing two workshops um, on April 18th, one for LDS women, a four-hour workshop on desire, and then a workshop that evening for couples on, on relational losing strategies that undermine passion and intimacy. So I'll be doing that, and you can learn more about that on my website if anyone's interested. And then I'm also going to be doing an online course on how to talk to your kids about sexuality that I haven't secured dates for yet, but it'll probably be sometime in May, um, uh, maybe like a three-week course. So, meaning three three long classes is what I mean. <laughs> so that's coming up. All right. So lots of stuff to look forward to. So keep checking in on her on Jennifer's website, which we link to. And uh, if any of those fit your schedule and or geography, um, jump on that opportunity. To start, our our first question is for uh, parents who want to know a good way to address masturbation with kids. And it's not specific whether they're young children or older teenagers or adolescents. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna punt this over to Jennifer and see what she has to say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, this has come to us in several different forms of the question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think any way that you can address it would be helpful. Sure. Okay. Well, so I think that let me just kind of 
give a frame on how I think about the question and then what it means more or less at different ages. Um, I think first I would say that the topic of masturbation really, I think, gets us pretty anxious, um, particularly as parents. They fear that our kids are tampering with sort of a dangerous power or a dangerous self-knowledge, maybe a fear that it's going to make them perverse or turn them into porn addicts or, um, you know, sexual addicts or something like that. And so we can be really distressed at times when we see our kids, you know, even our very young children touching themselves and, and so on. And so I, I want to think about how to think about both what healthy sexual development is and then maybe what it looks like uh, when it does go awry. Um, I think that from the, for just to start with that sexual self-exploration is very normal you know, babies do it in utero, uh, you know, young children touch themselves a lot. It's just a part of coming to know their own body, their own God-given body. And to be, babies are sensual, children, human beings are sensual. But, you know, to kind of, that's a primary way of communicating to a young child is through touch. And it's a way for them to know themselves and so it's just natural that in the bathtub and, uh, you know, in other contexts, they're just touching their own bodies and become aware of their own capacity for pleasure um, and arousal even at a young child's level. And, you know, a lot of people don't even know that young children are capable of arousal and even orgasm, but they, they are. It's just a natural reflex that's a part of the body from the get-go. And so there's nothing, not only is there nothing perverse about that, it's in fact good. It's important um, because it's really the way parents react to it that becomes problematic because if parents shame it or say it's dirty or wrong or, you know, they can, the child reads very quickly that touching their genitals, the mother looks like she's going to, you know, (laughs) freak out. You know, they quickly learn like, oh, okay, there's something shameful about this or wrong with this. A much more appropriate response is more matter of fact and more neutral. Um, It's just seeing it as normal developmentally. And, you know, if there's ever a real boundary to put around it, it's that um, if there's sort of a public-private distinction to be made, if your child's touching themselves and when they're going into the grocery store, they have their hand down their pants or something, that you may be talking to them about the fact that it's not polite. But you don't want to shame the fact that a child might even find comfort in touching themselves. So, um, you know, the only caveat I would give is that the child is touching themselves excessively in that way. It sometimes can be an indication of sexual abuse is happening, um, but n- certainly not necessarily. It's just something to kind of be aware of, like how much sexual knowledge do they have and does it seem to be outside of what would be just sort of a normal developmental response. So um, quick, go ahead, can I sure. have a quick question about sure. that? So um, because a lot of, you know, I know for a lot of LDS families, um, any level of a child's self-exploration might feel excessive if you've grown mm-hmm. up in a very strict environment. So what would, 
you know, what would actually, I guess, clinically be defined as excessive so that someone could actually be aware of, oh, there might actually be something going on instead of just finding out their child is masturbating and then just assume that they must be being abused right away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, I had a client who came in and just she mentioned, uh, I think even in the first session, just that uh, she was just unsettled about her daughter, uh, daughter's behavior. And so I asked more questions and she just said, you know, she seems to be touching her genitals a lot. She seems to be talking about them a lot. She seems to be, you know, talking to her younger sibling about it. Or maybe it was the older sibling. I can't remember which direction it was. But in the child was four. And to me, it just seemed like just an unusual fixation on it mm-hmm. for what would a normal. So you're asking a good question. I'm trying to give an easy answer to it. What might be more normal is just kind of maybe some curiosity, but not, they're not obsessing. They're not really, mm-hmm. really I know for some families, like anything would feel like obsessing, but they're not sort of bringing themselves back to the topic again and again. Like they're not bringing it up themselves out of nowhere repeatedly. Yeah, repeatedly. It's just more like a curiosity and passing and then they move on or they're in the bathtub and there might be some mild exploration, but not, you know, they're not sort of focused on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when she was describing her daughter, I said, that that's a little concerning to me, you know, who does, who takes care of her. So it, it turned out that she asked her daughter and that they the babysitter had been molesting the child. And so, um, but it just, it just, because the daughter seemed to be like trying to resolve something almost around this, you know, and so there was a kind of anxiety and a focus that she could track in her daughter. Um, that was certainly worth paying attention to. Mm -hmm. I would, I would be looking for anxiety at all and sort of a kind of fixation as opposed Mm -hmm. to just, Hmm, this is interesting. You <laughs> know, that kind of attitude. So, so, are there like good questions to ask your kids to find out if they're, you know, like fixated on it as opposed to just, oh, that was an interesting thing I just did? <laughs> yeah, there are great questions. And, you know, I can't, I don't have any of them on the top of my head because I gave a presentation uh, on this about a year ago. And the one of the books that I thought was extremely helpful was a book by Gavin De Becker. And, Gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. He wrote a book called The Gift of Fear, which is an excellent book. But then he wrote one um, about keeping our children safe. And that's just a good resource for uh, knowing what kinds of questions and what kinds of signs to look for. Um, But I can't think of the name of it. Sorry about that. Is it protecting the gift, keeping ch- yes. children and teenagers Thank you. safe? That's exactly it. Protecting we'll, the gift. we'll link to that. Great, great. So, you know, I think it depends on the age of the child and how much you think they're going to feel comfortable opening up and where you might start with the questions. So that's why I might recommend the resource more than just any questions I just say right now. But, um, you know, with his four-year-old, I think she just asked pretty direct questions because I think she understood the four-year-old would probably be willing to say, and so she just said, you know, you seem to touch your bum a lot. You know, is, is there anybody else that has touched it? Or you And the daughter just said, yeah, the babysitter touches it. And so, you know, that was, it was, she, once her mother was willing to ask the question and she could track that her mother was interested in an answer, she told her. So, um, 
So I think, you know, I, anyway, we can have a podcast on that at some point on how to talk to your, how, how to kind of give your kids the message that you're a safe person for them to talk to, which is an important part of it also. But getting back to the masturbation question, which is, um, the, so, you know, that, so what I would say is that I think a really important part of sexuality and sexual desire that I talk about in a lot of my online courses and so on is a, is a, having a deep sense of ownership of your sexuality. And that in our theological frame, we care very much about how sexuality is expressed and the context of expression and that, you know, Meaning we put high value on, on sexuality and also on how sexuality is expressed. And sometimes we get so anxious about the context, meaning of marriage, that we kind of shame sexuality as a way to, um, keep it from, from sex happening outside of marriage. But of course that really works against us. And so what our bigger goal is, in my opinion, as to offer our children a framework to prepare them for healthy sexuality as adults is to allow them to accept the sensual, sensual capacity, the erotic capacity, um, um, and the beauty of their bodies. And that the best time to start offering that to your kids is as young children. And, um, and so now, that said, um, how what master how masturbation fits into that frame? I think my perspective on it is probably different than many people um, who are in the church. I do think that not only is self exploration an important part of early childhood, I do think it's a part of normal sexual development. And I would even go as far as to say it's an important part of normal sexual development because even though we're anxious about compulsive masturbation and pornography use and certainly the idea that anybody would be um, in some, any kind of fixated or compulsive um, orientation to masturbation or sexuality, I do think sort of the open secret is that some awareness of your body's capacity for eroticism is an important part of becoming a sexual being. And I think there's not just the element of becoming aware that your body is capable of eroticism. I think there's also the element of developing an erotic mind. Now, I realize I'm kind of walking into territory that's a little bit hard for people but part of the problems that I deal with in working with LDS couples is that for many people, there's so much anxiety about sexuality that two things happen. Either the erotic mind gets kind of shut down and there's sort of a snuffing out of sexual desire and sexual creativity, or it gets almost derailed into like, almost like I'm not, I shouldn't have these feelings. And then it gets expressed in non-relational ways. So through objectified sexuality, pornography or, or, you know, other chat rooms or that kind of thing. And, um, and I would say both represent the lack of integration of one's sexuality. And 
in a healthy way, in a pro-social and pro-relational way. That's the goal. So as Mormons, we, as I've said in many podcasts, we have a pro-sex, pro-body theology, which is wonderful. We really see sexuality as inherent to our development as our spiritual development and our development as, as children of God. And we, I think, are afraid of an important process, but I think it's really essential, which is coming to terms with our own sexual bodies. And then once we get married, being able to share our sexuality with an important other person that includes our erotic capacity. This is the uniquely human capacity is our eroticism, the ability to bring meaning to our arousal. And I think the function of masturbation is when it's healthy is that you develop, you know, for example, in um, Linda and Richard Iyer wrote a book called How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex. They're an LDS couple, and this is a book that they wrote for the non-LDS, for the, just the, the population at large, not an LDS population necessarily. And one of the things that they say in their book is that, you know, sexuality is special and it's important and the, the context of it matters very much. And, you know, being careful about how much um, eroticism you are um exploring or encouraging premaritally is important, that you want to be wise about that. You want to be careful about that. But then they say, but when you masturbate, you know, like they say, like it's good to be restrained and to be careful, but when you masturbate, think about the person that you will someday make love to. Think about loving someone deeply and making love to him or her. And I think that's a beautiful message, actually. Not just beautiful, I think it's a very important message because it's literally the process of imagining yourself as a sexual being prior to being in a relationship, which is how we do most everything else, right? That we belong to ourselves and then we share ourselves. We develop ourselves and then we get married. We And so there's some amount of development of our own sexuality before we get married. It's it's just the reality. I think we all want to believe that our children on the night of their wedding will wake up to their sexuality. But that's not only extremely naive, it's it's a setup for a disaster. <laughs> okay. And uh, what we want to teach our children is how to use their sexuality in responsible, wise ways that prepares them for the context of a committed, loving relationship in which they can express their sexuality in healthy ways, ways that blesses their life and the life of their spouse. And I think putting the kibosh on any self-exploration out of the, out of the gate is, as a starting gate is, is, um, is irresponsible and it's a setup for failure for our kids. You know, I just met with a couple for the first time yesterday, both he and she said that they feel sort of a dull sense of guilt every time they have sex and that it's just been very hard that even though they believe on some logical level that sex is good and ordained of God, they can't shake the feeling that they're doing something wrong. And that's just wrong. That's just off. We're, we're not doing our job if that's what our youth are believing at the point of getting married. 
And I think our fear is like if we talk about it or if we encourage any amount of self-awareness or um, eroticism within our children that they're just going to go crazy. But the thing is, you know, they're going to go off the rails and, you know, be having sex in in high school and all this. And the thing is, all the research shows the opposite is true is that the more knowledge your children have, the more sense of ownership they have over their sexuality, the wiser they are in their decision-making, the slower they are to have sex. And it's the ill-equipped and the people that know nothing about themselves that are both more prone to have sex and they're more prone to be abused sexually. So, you know, we need to do a better job with this. And I guess the message is... is um Certainly, it's problematic when masturbation gets linked with pornography, in my opinion, because what happens is the natural process of developing in your mind a relationship to your future spouse, for example, through your sexuality, your your that natural process is getting hijacked in very unnatural, often antisocial expressions of sexuality, and then your 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 sexuality is being forged in that frame and that's very problematic and very disruptive to a healthy sexual relationship down the road. So it's around teaching our children that our sexuality is a gift to bless our lives and the lives of our spouse down the road and that anything that interferes with that process is, is, is problematic whether it's shame or excessiveness. And so that's the framework. And then how you talk about what that means for your children must come out of that, in my opinion. I think that's a really good way to reframe sexuality in the the trope of moderation in all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, you know, we... <laughs> We think of moderation in all things as in abstinence and avoidance. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, what you're framing here is real moderation, controlling and being aware of excesses uh, one way or another. That's right. Uh, yeah, so I think that's really helpful. Great. So if anyone listening does have more specific questions, please feel free to ask those on the website or on the email that we will put on the website. How do you get over the mom's saggy boobs, stretched out stomach, cottage cheese body stuff to feel sexy? Is keeping the lights off the only way to pretend you're sexy? Or should I just give in and get a repair job? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Sort of where to start. I think that... I guess I have a couple thoughts about that. Um, one is that I think, especially as women, we really are in a very challenging culture around self-acceptance and acceptance of our bodies. Um, I don't even want to say our imperfect bodies because it's just acceptance of our bodies. That, um, because that is to say we are offered two things. One is the the pressure to be desirable as a function of being a good female. And then second, very rigid, stringent standards around what that looks like. And 
And if you look across periods of time, that what was the most desirable was the least attainable in any given culture. So in periods of famine, it was to be fat. And in periods of excess, it's to be, uh, you know, um, excessively thin. And and so this kind of uh, fixation on trying to achieve a aesthetic ideal has often been a burden that women have borne. Um, and because girls and women just ingest this in the whole culture, it's really hard to talk people out of it um, because there's just a self-hatred that can quickly grow out of that message. So I remember, you know, as a pre-adolescent, really not thinking much at all about how I looked, shape of my body. I just, I don't know, I just, you know, out playing in the yard with my brothers and running around, you know, just like a kind of freedom around all of that. And I remember when I turned probably 11 or 12, um, just understanding probably my shifts in my own psychological makeup were going on, but also just becoming attuned to my environment. And it, it felt very clear to me that my goal was to be seen as desirable to the opposite sex. And because I knew I wanted to be desirable, I started looking to what that meant, you know, looking to my older brothers and what their notions of that were, was and looking to, you know, magazines like 17 and, you know, whatever was popular back then. And, you know, the makeup ads and how to look slim and, you know, which outfits are the best for your body type. And, and I was, there were two emotions. One is that it was exciting, this idea of, of making yourself attractive and, you know, being this kind of feminine ideal. And also a lot of self-rejection right along with it because, I, you know, I could see all the ways that I wasn't, the, I wasn't, didn't look like those models. And in many respects, that became almost like they are so lucky, kind of like they've achieved the highest aims of womanhood, <laughs> the ones that are in those magazines, which is just a horrifying message. So um, I guess, you know, the challenge of this question is, when I think about what it means to be sexual as a woman, not me personally, but I'm just saying as women, what we often think about what it means to be sexual or de or uh, desirable, how should I say it? What we often think of when we think about what it means to be sexual is to be desirable. And if we don't feel desirable, then it really undermines our ability to feel sexual. And so to this point of this person's question, She's saying, do I just turn out all the light so I can sort of disconnect from my body and therefore believe for a moment that I'm desirable? Or do I need to go out and get the actual work done that I can look like that cultural ideal? And I would say that what's at stake is ultimately an issue of self-betrayal. Um, that I have been fed this message that I am not enough that my body's not enough, that I am unworthy of pleasure and desire and goodness in my life because I don't look like some unrealistic image in a magazine. And am I going to really accept that? Am I really going, I mean, I've been offered that message, but am I going to actually accept it and to 
pressure myself in this way? And what would it mean to be kinder to myself? That those saggy boobs and those stretch marks are a testament of what I have, my body is capable of. It's a testament of its power and in bringing forth life, for example, and for what I've achieved in the world. And am I going to really dismiss it as all, you know, unacceptable and unworthy? It, it, it's to buy into a message that's really misogynistic. And can I offer better to myself? Um, because I think that keeping the lights on has a lot more to do, and I'm not saying everybody has to keep the lights on when they have sex necessarily, but, you know, the ability to calm ourselves down and to be at peace in our own skin and to feel desirable is prof- it's, a, it's a radical move. It's a profound move to say, I am enough. I'm sufficient as an imperfect human being, an imperfect child of God. And um, I can accept and receive my desirability. I mean, oftentimes where this breaks down is not about men who see their wives as being too saggy and cottage cheesy. It's that women themselves have a hard time believing that they are um, acceptable. So now, all that said, I guess I would also say I'm not here to say nobody should ever go and have any, you know, plastic surgery done or any aesthetic work done if it really, truly would offer them peace of mind. My experience is that it doesn't usually offer people peace of mind. Um, it usually just perpetuates the fixation on one's body. Um and the standards just sort of get higher. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily always true. I think, you know, I know someone who was already small-breasted before she had children. Then after nursing many babies, she just felt like um, she almost felt unfeminine because she was she had no volume in her breasts. And so she went and got um, a boob job done. And She's never thought about it since, and she feels good about it, you know. And I, and so I guess I'm saying, you know, it's up to an individual if there's something they feel that would really be helpful to them. But if if we imagine, it's a little bit like somebody saying, if, as soon as I make a million dollars, I will feel like I've I've achieved in the world. I know someone who said that I want to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30, and he did, and then he didn't you know, then he just wanted to make 10 million by the time he was 35. And then he was going to have that feeling of really having arrived or being successful or sufficient. And it's sort of the same thing that if we're chasing after something that's not going to really give us what we want, then we're going to keep chasing after it unless we learn that we're chasing after the wrong thing. All right. So growing up, um, you know, a lot of us have always heard, like, oh, yeah, it's not what's on the outside, it's on the inside. And, you know, you have all these messages, yet at the same time, the culture, both in and out of the church, still reinforces the importance of your physical appearance. Um, you know, like the whole modest is hottest thing still reinforces it's important to be hot. Um, and uh, and that's a really important thing. Um so what are so it's really difficult to then try and like figure out really practical ways to combat that when it's just the air you breathe. Um like I mean I I there's a few things that have helped me and I'm still looking for more. Um mm-hmm. 
But for me, it's like I, I will not consume media that is very, you know, just physical appearance obsessed. I will not I do not have fashion magazines in my house. Um, I will not go to websites that are kind of celebrity gossip websites mm-hmm. um, just because I can I, I, I can just feel that it sh- shifts my perspective. Um you know, there were times where I sometimes wouldn't even look at ensign pictures if I felt like, um, if I felt like they were too manicured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, that's been really helpful. Um, in the, the, and the other thing is for me was, um, learning about what my body could do as opposed to just what it looks like, mm-hmm. but really focusing on, you know, um, you know, what can my body do? So I was curious if you have any other, you know, well, I think those are those are great ideas. I think um, I, I did a similar thing. I mean, I think when I was in my early adolescence, I was looking at fashion magazines and it it was not helpful for me at all. And I just kind of at some level just, just re, was rejected popular culture. I just I don't know, maybe it's just a sort of self-preserving urge, but I just uh rejected it and just don't have those kinds of magazines in my home and haven't spent much energy or time on any of those things. Um I think that so I think that's it's just like keep keep the porn out, keep the fashion magazines out because they teach really unhealthy um immoderate notions of what it is to be a whole human being. Um I think yeah, like the messages that you're asking what's helpful. I mean, I do think it's like sort of managing the messages and managing your notion of like, what is, what is it that I believe? How to say it? I think what I'm trying to grapple with is this question of like, on the one hand, I think it's important to feel desirable. Uh, The issue is on what terms am I going to define desirability? And, you know, I want to feel attractive. I want to feel that my husband would have good judgment in desiring me. But the good judgment is not about, you know, the ever-increasing wrinkles and sag. (laughs) You know, that it's more about who I am on the inside. You know, I think we'll always be drawn to youth and perkiness, but, but when we are our kindest, best selves, we're really drawn to the person that's on the inside. So it's being able to reassure ourselves that our self-respect is really what drives desirability um, in ourselves. It's that we're living our lives in a way that we respect, that makes it easier for us to believe we're desirable human beings. Um, it's thinking about relating to your body and even your aesthetic body out of self-respect, not out of, an, out of an anxiety to be sufficient for other people. It's more around how do I treat my body that I see as a gift and a wonderful thing in my life? How do I treat it with, self, with respect? How do I treat it well? How do I feed it well? How do I take care of it? Um, how do I dress as a function of self-respect? Um, because I think that increases our sense of desirability without a kind of self-betrayal that's at the core of a kind of aesthetic anxiety that many young women and, well, women in general will often feel. You know, something that I really try to do with my children and particularly my daughter is just 
you know, we don't, we just don't consume much popular media. We just don't. And there's just not a lot of focus on, I would say there's no focus on the size of her body. There's, it's just, you know, it's honoring and valuing all the ways that she's engaged in the world and what her body allows her. Um, and that she's a beautiful person, you know, that she is beautiful just inherently. And so I'm sure she will inherit some of those anxieties because it's just hard to get through life without some of them. But I'm hoping to offer an antidote both in the ways that I relate to her. I never, ever talk about the size of her body and I never, ever talk about the size of my body. Um, I don't, I try really hard. I'd never talk about going on a diet. I'd never talk about, I talk about treating my body well, talk about being healthy, but that's the focus. My wife grew up in a house where her, her mother never ever talked about body image or, or anything like that. Mm. And she's never been, it's never been a concern Mm. for her. Um, you know, she's very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, she she wears makeup like once a week, mm-hmm. if that. And I think she's fine with or without makeup. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, that's just I've I've been almost perplexed because you hear so much about concerns about body image, and I'm just wondering, like, why don't you care about <laughs> about this? Mm-hmm. And I think it's not not as if not as in I'm saying come on, why don't you care about this? Mm-hmm. But as I'm just kind of wondering, like, why isn't this a concern? It seems like it is for, for every other lump how woman. How did she escape and, it, right, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, how did she escape it? And mm-hmm. I think a big part of it was her mother just never, she never consumed that sort of media and never talked about it. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a that can be a really powerful yes, influence. Absolutely, because young girls are, are often looking to their mothers about what does it mean to be a woman and what does it mean to, um, you know, to respect yourself in the world. And if they can get that from their mother, that's a huge antidote, I think. Yeah, I found that, um, you know, I, uh, while I was at BYU, it, it just seemed that there was, uh, at least, whether it was me or someone else, at least every semester, there was someone in the house, um, that, had an eating disorder of some kind or a body image complex, even if they weren't, you know, had an eating disorder of some kind, there was still this, they were obsessively counting calories or always checking the mirror and to the point where it was not healthy. And, you know, and I, I later developed some things too, that I was able to much later figure out kind of how to get out of, um, because it wasn't, you know, like life threateningly severe for me. Um, but it, it, there is something that I and I'm, I still am trying to figure out what it is about our church culture that doesn't really help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, um, you, you know what the, I think. It, you know what I think it is. It doesn't help. Is that there is a lot of messaging around being desirable and choosable as a young woman, and it has a lot of focus. So first of all, it's a passive position, and there's a lot of focus on. Uh, well, at least I, when I was growing up, we would have young women's evenings on makeup tips and, um, you know, how to exercise and eat right, not out of sort of self-respect, but with a sort of desirability frame. Mm. And 
that certainly fit into my worldview. I didn't think it was strange back then. I, you know, liked makeup nights, you know. <laughs> um, but I think that that passive position that we offer to women really reinforces that. It's one thing to learn makeup tips when you feel like you have 17 other ways to have a positive impact in the world and that you like being able to make your eyes stand out more as just one small piece of a much bigger picture, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then it's no big deal. If it's sort of the way to define yourself, it can become, you know, heart-wrenchingly consuming. And, you know, I just feel for people who are just trying to sort of establish their significance through being the right size because it's such a limited frame. And, I, you know, I think we would serve young women better to think of ourselves as agents in the world and able to make positive impact on many fronts, not just to be desired, but capable of desire, not just, um, you know, to be married is sort of the end goal of life, but to have a positive effect in many domains of life, whether or not you marry. And, you know, I think if we could broaden the picture of womanhood, it would certainly alleviate the anxiety around this question a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've, um, I've often wondered why, you know, we address pornography problems quite a bit in the church, but rarely address eating disorders. And I, I I'm always confused by that because it's a huge problem that I've seen um, with women and, and one that, and, and again, it's, you know, kind of like pornography. It's very shame based, you know, um, you know, women who have problems don't usually like to talk about it or they don't recognize that it's a problem that, right. you know, literally count. Like, I mean, I didn't realize it was a problem. The fact that every single day, every hour I went over and counted the calories I'd eaten that last, that whole day, mm-hmm. you know, obsessively. Um, yeah. to the point where it was like a main focus of my day. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, because like you said, I, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with learning to be healthy and all that. But, but it did become, I, I mean, I, I believed that if I was a certain size, if I had a certain body type, that life would just be a lot better. Um, and, uh, and, and I saw that with a lot of other women. Right. Um, and it, you know, and it kind of concerned me that there wasn't a lot. I mean, they had they had some great programs at BYU if you actually wanted help with eating disorders, but just in general, there wasn't a lot. No one was really talking about it, um, right. and that I just found that kind of concerning. <laughs> right. Right. So, Laurel, I don't know if you've mentioned the Beauty Redefined yet. Oh yeah. Um, but maybe you could bring that up as a resource. Yeah, well, yeah, as we were talking about, um, like for me, when I started to kind of realize I had some body image problems and I started getting rid of all that media, that was a huge, I noticed a huge difference. Um, and a few years ago, uh, two sisters started Beauty Redefined, um, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have probably seen on Facebook or on the web, um, basically, you know, helping women deal with body image issues mm-hmm. and they they often talk about having media fasts and seeing mm-hmm. how it changes your perspective um but yeah we should link to them as well they're a great resource for yeah, women yeah they're wonderful um and they're all and they're they both have PhDs like they've all you know it's all scientifically backed as well mm-hmm. um you know yeah that's a great resource um so i'd highly recommend that um 
Yeah, and right, and, I, and the thing I love about the titles, it's not about the absence of beauty or, or how to say it, like that beauty can't be a fundamental part of our lives, but mm-hmm. it's beauty redefined, the beauty of being a whole person, being at peace with oneself. Um, you know, I remember my husband saying that to me in the first year of our marriage when I was somewhat anxious about my body and my desirability and him saying, you know, the most attractive thing to me is you at peace with yourself. Mm. And, you know, that's just true. That is, that is. When I actually found that even I, I did music dance theater at BYU, and even though dance can often and it did at times exacerbate, exacerbate, I can't speak. Um, <laughs> even though dance can make some body image issues worse, um, I actually found doing modern dance in some ways healed some of that because um, modern doesn't have a particular body type necessarily that you have to have, and I started to learn to appreciate um, the way different bodies could move and started to see things as beautiful um, just because people moved in unique ways. Um, and there were several women in my classes who did not have traditional dancer body types but were amazing dancers and did beautiful things with their bodies. Um, and it, for me, that was another big thing, like, oh, my gosh, like the body mm-hmm. can do beautiful things mm-hmm. and do amazing things besides just sitting there looking a certain way. Yes. Um, yep. So yep. that was another thing for me that, you know, I, I find that I do better when I'm also exercising because then I'm more focused on the cool stuff my body's doing um, right. than just how it looks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I just think, you know, the takeaway message is just broadening our perspective on what it is to be beautiful, broadening our perspective on what it is to be a woman and uh, how to sort of be signif- have significance as a woman, which is so far beyond just the aesthetics of that, mm-hmm. and um, about managing the messages, uh, you know, that we allow into our lives because they can consume us and control us and... And, you know, we get to we get to decide how we're going to relate to ourselves. We don't have to just be spoon fed that. And uh, there's a tremendous latitude to just uh, accept your lovely body in its current form mm-hmm. and see it as worthy and worthy of pleasure and desire and and all and all of that. Well, thank you, Jennifer and Laurel, for being on the podcast again. This is always, I always learn. It's always good. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, wasn't that fun? Jennifer's great. She always gives us wonderful perspective and good ideas. So moving on to next week, what you can look forward to, listeners, is one of two options. I'm not exactly sure which it will be. It very well could be option A, which would be the first installment of our new theme or new series in which we will discuss cognitive biases, social psychology, and all sorts of things that keep us from knowing what we want to know as we are humans. 
the tentative title I've been throwing around, you'll have to vote for it if you like it, is The Very Human Mormon Mind. Uh, Brian Kissel is organizing this as he's about to go to graduate school in psychology. And uh, he does some other podcasts in, in which he interviews academics in the psychology field. So we are looking forward to that. In case that does not materialize, we will entertain option B, in which we will have a wonderful discussion from several Mormon historians talking about the craft of history and how we know what we know through the historical method, what the historical method is, um, those sorts of things. So that will be a fun discussion as well. Either way, you win. So look forward to those, and as always, keep keeping it weird. Thank you.